You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts today are Oliver Altine and Alonzo Luconi. Our guest today is Daniel Rojas. Daniel Rojas is a Costa Rican composer and music producer based in Los Angeles, California. He's written music for over 60 feature films, TV shows, and video games, including music featured in the Oscar-winning movie Room, Jodie Foster's thriller Money Monster, and Alexander Payne's latest film Downsizing. He's also recorded and produced songs for artists such as Demi Lovato, Lucy Hale, Sia, Wu-Tang Clan, Snoop Dogg, Brian Adams, and Jason Mraz. He's currently scoring an upcoming DreamWorks animation series for Netflix. So Lonzo and I took a trip up to Daniel's studio in Culver City, and we had an amazing conversation about what it's like to write music for films and TV shows, what it's like to record at Abbey Road Studios in London, and all kinds of things about what goes on behind the scenes and how the industry really works. And whether you're a musician or a composer, or if you just like movies and TV, you're going to find some interesting stuff in this conversation, so stick around. One more thing before we get started. With the exception of the Authenticity Show theme song, which you're listening to right now, which happens at the beginning and the very end, all the music in this episode was composed by Daniel Rojas. Well, Daniel Rojas, welcome to the Authenticity Show. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us over. Hey, Lonzo. Hey, Oliver and Daniel. What's you know up? this guy, right? Of course. Yeah, fellow Costa Rica. Way back, like just about a year ago. <laughs> a little bit more, I think. Yeah, a little yeah. bit longer than a year. A years. So, Daniel, you are a composer, correct? Musician, producer, many other things. Well, yeah, what, mostly, I mean, yeah, mostly in music, but yeah, uh-huh. composer, producer, and performer sometimes. So, how did you get started uh, writing music for films and TV shows? Ever since I was I was little, I, I had an interest in writing music. Mm-hmm. My parents are both musicians oh, uh, cool. professionally, so I I grew in a house with a lot of music uh-huh. and I was all, always more inclined towards writing my own stuff than necessarily performance or things like that. Uh-huh. Um, so I always had a, a tendency towards, towards that kind of stuff. But of course, finding a career path was a whole, a whole process, you yeah. know, like finding, especially coming from Costa Rica where it's a country that doesn't have a tradition of a lot of media music. There's some concert music composers and some that have done uh, pretty well. But in media music, there's, there's not a big tradition. There's a little bit of commercials. Now right. there's some production. But even if we go back 10 years ago, there were virtually no national productions that required scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something very new to the country. Interesting. Well, as a aspiring producer myself, I would love to pick your brain about this kind of stuff. Yeah, for well, sure. How did you... Well, when was the first time you sold a piece of music or were hired to compose music? How did that happen for you? Yeah, that was actually my first year of college towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first time I ever had any kind of paid gig. Right. And it was, funny enough, it was for a friend's sister's wedding <laughs> that she, she wanted to have some sort of musical piece that kind of resembled like a rom-com type of, uh-huh. type of cue. Okay. Uh, and... My friend knew that I was getting into scoring and they were going to put something from an existing movie like Notting Hill or something like that. Okay, right. And uh, I, I 
offered to try it and they gave me like i think it was like 150 bucks nice. <laughs> and i remember holding that check and being like wow i'm a i'm a paid composer <laughs> right <laughs> that was that was it that was freshman year yeah and so if you break that down as as far as uh the amount of money per hour i'm sure it wasn't a great <laughs> salary right? like a dollar an hour or something yeah because you know writing music <laughs> and scoring that's not that's not something you can whip out in you know 15 minutes it takes a lot of time especially if it's your first one i, I oh imagine. for sure Oh yeah, and I took that so seriously. Sure. Which you know, it's in retrospect, I, it was the right thing to do. But you know, that was that was a gig at yeah. the time. So I did rewrites, changed stuff. Right. And this was in sure Costa was Rica. No, this was here in the U.S. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, in Costa Rica. Uh, before I moved to the U.S., I I was never really paid for, for music. I mean, I did mm -hmm. some some shows and things like that, but uh, not as a composer. I remember us, uh, you know, talking when we first met, but it would be really cool for you to share <clears throat> how you got into this world because this was not, from what you told me, this was not your original plan or at least it, it was not like right. meant to happen this way. But I, I, I remember your story being amazing and, and, you know, full of surprises for you. And uh, Yeah, exactly. So, so how, did um, you, how did you get here to where you are? Uh, when I was in college, one of my teachers, uh, his name was Pyrus Rutherford, and he was the jazz arranging teacher. He had some experience doing some oh. some media music. Paris Rutherford, that's quite a jazzy name. That is a very jazzy <laughs> name, and he was that's a jazz it. guy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I can almost picture this guy just from his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, he had written some music for like news networks and things like that. And I remember talking to him quite a bit about how to get started. And he insisted many times that he thought L.A. was the right place. Mm -hmm. So even then, it was I think it was sophomore year of college, I already had this idea that eventually I should come to L.A., but I didn't know anyone here at all. So all my connections, well, my few connections were either in Texas, where I was in college, or in New York, because a lot of people from my university moved to New York afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had nearly no connections on the West Coast. But through the years in college, I ended up uh, playing with Demi Lovato, who was a pop singer. Okay, yeah, sure. And um, because she's from Dallas. Mm -hmm. And the band, um, some of the other members lived in L.A. And so that, that was kind of my first connection into some professional musicians in Los Angeles. So while I was in college on my third year, I came here uh, during the summer and spent several weeks here. A family friend that lived in Los Angeles let me couch surf. And um, I started emailing a ton of studios and things like that to try to get some connections. And then through the fellow musicians uh, from, from Demi Lovato, I was able to get into some rehearsals and things like that. Right. Um, and that was how I started meeting some composers and assistants and people that would work either like engineers and things like that. I remember I went to a couple of rehearsals at the Musicians Union right here in L.A., And I met a couple uh, assistant engineers that would tell me like, oh, I oftentimes work with this composer, with that composer. And eventually I met a guy, Kyle, who used to work at Hans Zimmer's studio. Okay. Um, and I was able to visit the studio there. Nice. And eventually I started meeting a lot of people in that circle. Right. Um, so LA was definitely the place to be then. Because you meeting Absolutely. people was networking, and that was that was how it that was how it happened. That really is how it happened. Yeah. So at this time, you said you were also performing, right? You said you played with Demi Lovato, and I'm sure other people. What what kind of? Yeah. So you did you have your own band or? Yes, what? I did. Well, I'd never had like a band band here in the U.S. of my own. 
But I played all kinds of stuff. I would play like restaurant gigs, cafes. Right. I was a jazz musician, so I did a lot of like duo sets with singers or so trios. You were, so you were a guitarist for hire, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And um, since I had a lot of pop tendency in in a in a very traditional music school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one of the few people that would just play at cafes, play like cover songs and things like that, because at the time, a lot of the people in my school, you know, kind of looked down on that stuff, but I always really liked it. So, um, yeah, I was doing a lot of that, always very uh, inclined towards more pop music mm-hmm. than, than the jazz that I was doing more, mostly for the academic purposes. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. it is so foreign for academic musicians like just the whole concept of just pop music like yeah, playing pop music is like oh that's just right. that's too simple that's the easy stuff you know that's oh, yeah. that we don't we don't we don't engage in that very often unless it's just for fun you well, know i think it's easy but then they can't do it <laughs> it's uh, absolutely <laughs> it really is <laughs> and well, it requires I, a certain you know like feel to it yeah that, that you have to get used to you got yeah get gotta get close to yeah for uh-huh. sure yeah i remember in north texas even um a, a couple times for recitals, I arranged my own versions of pop songs in a jazzy way, and I would I would spend hours doing like this fairly clever arrangements, mm-hmm. and then they would dismiss it immediately. They would be like, "No, we're not gonna do that. You have to do Stella by Starlight." Oh, <laughs> I was like, yeah. "All right," you know, like it was just very looked down upon. Oh, that's too bad. I mean, um, originally that's what jazz was, right? Popular songs of the day. And absolutely. Do, I, I still mean, think it should be, but it's kind of you know, there's a little disconnect yeah. there sometimes. Yeah, uh, tradition. <laughs> yeah. So, Daniel, I'd like to listen to some of your orchestral film music, if we could. You were telling me that you worked as an assistant to Klaus Bedelt for a few years. Klaus Bedelt being famous for writing the music for Pirates of the Caribbean and many other films. And as his assistant, you wrote this music for a film called 30 Degrees. Uh, and I was wondering if you could set the scene for us. Can you tell us what's happening in the movie here so we can kind of get a feel for it before we listen to the music? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the film, uh, it was a French movie about this very successful lawyer in Paris who was actually born in Martinique, which is one of the French colonies in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he becomes an extremely successful and wealthy lawyer and decides to go home to, to, to visit his mom, uh, his biological mother. Basically, it's a story about kind of finding your roots because he when he's he's the the movie starts with him being a lawyer uh in in paris who's very detached from his roots and doesn't even want to ever talk about it he's very angry with his family Mm -hmm. for abandoning him he feels like he was kind of thrown into paris as the movie progresses you realize his family made a giant effort to send him to paris to the point that his brothers and everything were saving and helping him out and he never realized it when he was a child that it was that the reason why he was in Paris was actually because his whole family in Martinique did amazing efforts to give him a better life okay, and he wow. didn't realize that until he was an adult and he goes back home and sees his family and he realizes that everybody has his pictures and everybody like looks up to him and they and so it's a kind of like a an immigrant story with a lot of heart right so this cue is his return when he gets to Martinique and when he sees his mother for the first time after like 20 years. Wow. So it's called Arrival. Uh, 
Family Arrival. Family Arrival from the film 30 Degrees. Let's give it a listen. So, wow, beautiful, you know, yearning feelings going on in there. So, so when you compose music like this, are you thinking about the story? Like, how much does what's happening to this person in the story, this character, how much does that inform your musical choices? A lot, yeah. That's really um, most of what informs you, you know. I mean, yeah. there's uh, a palette that is established usually before you really start scoring, Mm-hmm. At least in most movies, there's a little time of of experimenting where you experiment with the director and producers to try to find the sound that they're looking for. Okay, right. Because it could be anything from very traditional orchestral to something more hybrid. Um, but once you find that kind of vocabulary where you are going to stay in the film, then yes, it's it's about just watching the film, trying to extract little little things from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, an inspiration for me for this was actually Alan Silvestri. He was a very famous uh, film composer. He's the guy who did Back to the Future and okay. um, most of Robert Zemeckis' movies. Okay, wow. And he did the music for Castaway, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite scores. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, it's amazing. I just watched that movie again a couple weeks ago. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, everything it's, about that movie is amazing. Oh. How, how many uh, awards did that movie get? Like. It got a few, but it, got, it definitely yeah. didn't get as many as it deserved, I think. Right, right. I remember mm. it, the thinking like, oh, wow, this movie should have gotten a lot more. Yeah. It's a, a brilliant movie because mm. I think when you're, at, when I watched it, I was younger, younger, and I, re- I all I remembered was the island part and Wilson and things like that. But the movie mm. is much more about the return. Sure. It's about what happens right. when you die, basically. Like, yeah. what would happen if you come back from the death? Because that's basically what happens to him. He right. comes back home. And realizes that people carry on, and people remember him, but their lives continue, and they mm. they rebuild their lives, and that's kind of a very unique perspective because we, you know, very few people get to see what happens after they right. die, you right. know, yeah, exactly. like, supposedly. So, but the score to that is very simple, and it has these very open chords, and right. it's just strings, just strings. Like uh, it has some woodwinds. So. I okay. think the 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 Castaway score does. But there's a certain loneliness to it and very, like, yeah. 
heartwarming quality to it. Mm-hmm. But um, I I remember when I was watching this this film, I kind of felt I I I would like to like at least take some of the essence of that right. and replicate it with with the kind of themes that we were working on right. on this film. So that was kind of my Alan Silvestri version of, of a cue. So. So, yeah. so for your work on this film, 30 Degrees, you decided on just strings? Uh, for other parts, no. It has okay. guitars, and it has some, okay. some, of, some of actually of the instruments that are right here. It has that first ukulele, the six-string ukulele. Okay. It's yeah. featured on that score quite a bit. Oh, nice. Okay. I could play you a little bit later. Okay. Um, but yes, it's, it's a very string-based um, right. score. Um, and where was it recorded? It was recorded at Abbey Road Studios in London with a 30-piece orchestra. That must, and have it been, was, that must have been nice. Uh, yeah. It was actually one of my first times there. And it was, yeah, yeah absolutely life-changing experience to see your, your music played by those stellar musicians in such a historic hall. So yeah. I always wonder, I, I, I feel like, you know, anybody who watches movies, especially if they're musicians, wonders about how all these things happen. So... You write the music, and did you hire the musicians yourself, or you just gave the music to the f- director of the film, or like how does that whole no, thing happen? No, no, no. Usually, there's it, it depends too on the budget of the film. Yeah. Um, larger budget movies would normally have a music department on the studio mm-hmm. that would take care of most of the logistics of of recording, um, and it also depends on the type of deal because sometimes you get what it's called a package deal. And on a package deal, a composer gets a fee, and then from that fee, we are responsible for the recording. So in that case, oh, I, I would have to book the orchestra or, or an assistant or something like that, but it right. would be from my side. And then bigger movies in general have a creative fee and a production fee. Okay. And the production fee is managed by the production studio. So the studio is the one that, that hires the, the musicians and mm. the film. Uh, uh, sorry, and, uh, and the orchestra and studio and things like that. So when you go to London at Abbey Road Studio as the composer, do you mm-hmm. have a role there? Are you just sitting back and watching? Or are you like conducting or like helping out? Or wh- what do you do when you're there? You, you basically can choose. So okay. Some composers like to conduct. Uh, I, I personally enjoy conducting a lot, but not when, when it's in a movie because I'm very concerned about the client. <laughs> in uh-huh. that case, the director and producers. And there's a very big value to being in the room with them when they're listening to it and being able uh. to react to what they're thinking, if they're not liking something, if we have to change things. Okay. So when it's a score that is mine or music that I have written, I almost never conduct it on, until maybe it's the end of the whole thing and I might conduct like the end credits piece just, just to feel that, you know, that, that thing right. of being right. standing in front of the orchestra. But usually... Usually, it's pretty stressful. Honestly, it's it's a very enjoyable part of the process, but also very very stressful because it's expensive. Right. Yeah. Every minute costs thousands of dollars when you add it up. When you have a hundred musicians, oh my god, and a whole you know for for a big score yeah. at least. Sure. Um. So there's very very small space for error. Right. And you have to make decisions very quickly. Like right. if they suddenly listen to it and they say, "Oh, it's too big. It's overwhelming." You need to make decisions on the spot and be like, "Okay, let's." cut the basses and the cello by half. And we're only going to keep the violins, viola, half of the cellos, and half of the basses, you know, to try to get a new texture. Wow. And you try almost it have out. to have that sound in your head before you make that decision. Like, okay, if I need to cut something, what am I going to cut? Absolutely. You know? And, oh my God, it's like... 
That or, sounds stressful, but yeah. potentially could be really fun. Like if it's if it's successful, it could be exhilarating, right? Yeah, for sure. I'm sure and, it is. And usually, when you're younger, most people are assistants. Like in my case, you know, like not not an assistant, but an additional composer. Mm-hmm. So in this case, Klaus Bedelt on on this movie was the main composer, and he's the guy who did Pirates of the Caribbean and, and very big movies, Gladiator with Hans Zimmer. Um, so he had way more experience, you know, thirty years more of experience. So he would be the one to make those calls. Right. Okay, and okay. after you do 20 projects with someone like that, you learn a lot of tricks. Right. And you learn like, oh, this, like, for example, tac- tacit all the brass and just record only the strings, record only the brass. And they're very, like, logical things. But when you're young, you might not think of that, especially right. if you're stressed. And that can give you so much space in the mix. Because yeah. then in the mix, you can just choose whether you want the brass or not. Or whether you want to do a brass minus 12 dB just to have it as a oh, little texture. So if you record them separately, then you can control mm-hmm. the final You can mix, control it right? a lot better than nice. if you play it all at once, where you can have a little bit of control with the spot microphones, but the tree microphones and the room microphones, there's nothing you can do right. to change those. Uh, so tricks like that, or, or like I said, like tacit some of the sections, or even like put mutes on them, different types of mutes. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all those little things or I mean sometimes you would change the chord you know maybe instead of you know change the inversion say same chord but a different inversion just kind of switch them up move the violins up an octave and sure. put the violas in the middle things like that that I you know being behind the the scenes and kind of seeing how those guys work and not just the the composer but also orchestrators a lot of times you would have one or two very experienced orchestrators I was, you're always just learning, you know, you're like taking note, you right. try to like replicate it. Yeah. Wow. And um, are the musicians watching the film while they're recording it? In general, no. No. Almost never. Um, because of NDA kind of things, the musicians are always facing to the front. NDA is? Uh, non-disclosure agreement. Oh, I see. So yeah. they're not allowed to see it before it's released? They're not allowed oh, to see it, yes. interesting. Yeah. Sometimes... The director or the studio will give them a little glimpse, okay. uh, unofficially, right. but they're not okay. by law. They're not allowed to see it. Um, usually, the conductor has to sign an agreement because the conductor obviously is looking towards the picture. Oh, I see. So the conductor is facing the picture, and the musicians are facing the other way. The musicians are facing the conductor. Oh, interesting. Yes. So the conductor always has the picture. Yeah. And you have the picture, and you have like a bar counter, uh, oh, and I it's see. the same that you would see from the from the booth. So okay. everyone in the booth will be seeing the movie too. Uh, but that's why on, on studio films, the booth is very reserved ju- to just the music team and a few executives and the, the, the production team. Like there's never, very rarely can you bring guests or things like that. Sometimes you can, mm-hmm. but if it's uh, a studio movie, it's very unlikely. Only the people that signed the, the NDA. Yeah, um, exactly. Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that that they would do it with the picture, you know, because, you know, very often when, when, when you talk about, like, an orchestra performing or something, is usually they just have the music in front of them, and then the conductor is just giving them, you know, the, the, cues, the cues or whatever, yeah. and, and and then that's it. You'd, like, you don't really need it, but I guess if you want to capture also some of the, the, uh, the character of that uh, particular scene or something, it's important that at least one of them uh, knows what's going on, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and usually, I guess the conductor who's overseeing, you know, everything he can he can translate that, you know, to the musicians. Uh, but yeah, I never thought of it that that it would be done that way. 
It's very interesting. And the relationship between the composer and the conductor is crucial. A lot of times, mm. as as composer, you would try to meet up with your conductor once or twice before the session, even watch the film together, and try to like make sure that you're both on the same page. Like write notes together and stuff like yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because the conductor will be your translator to the orchestra, right? While you're inside the booth dealing with all the politics of it, you <laughs> know, making sure and making decisions. Uh, then you need to be able to have a conductor that you can really trust and, and you know. Um, yeah. I guess that, that happens, you know, across the board when it comes to, you know, orchestra performances and especially when uh, the composer is alive <laughs> and mm -hmm. is there, you know, but there, it's, there seems to be so many other layers to this, like, you know, film scoring and, and, and like just the overall movie production uh, that... Like I, I don't know that. For example, that the 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 composer is dealing. It has like many. It wears many hats, in this case. And uh, I mean, you you your social skills have to, have to be like super good too. You can't be <laughs> like the, you know, the typical quiet kid in the corner because it's true. Essentially, That's a good point. Yeah, you have you you have to have these people like you too. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, more than anything, they yeah. need to respect you or like you Absolutely. know like make sure that they trust you to make the right calls. So we're wondering about the creative process of this. You know, you talked a little bit about, you know, you getting the visuals first, but you get them like without any sound. Sometimes there may be some sound effects and stuff like that, but there's there's no like music. There's mostly no background and everything. Um, so how do, you, how do you start this process? Like, do you, do you already have like pre-composed things for certain occasions or certain, uh, you know, moods that you're, that you're, you know, trying to to achieve or or like what comes first does the visual come first does the music come first does it is it like a by case kind of yeah in general the the visuals come first okay uh if it's a feature film like a live action type of film mm -hmm. usually you get a rough cut where it's uh with temporary sound and temporary um effects and everything so it's a very raw looking mm -hmm. cut oftentimes the editing is not finished a lot of times when we jump in the editing is still being finessed. It's ideal when you start with a final cut, uh, with a lock cut, because then you know that all the timings are going to stay. Uh, but that rarely happens. Mm. In, in the film industry, everything is always in a rush. So a lot of times they have to trigger you before they lock, uh, they lock the cut. They often call it a soft lock, <laughs> which means nothing really. <laughs> it's just like, you know, to get you started, and then they might change a lot of things. Um, but the earlier you can be attached to it, obviously the better. It gives you more time to experiment and more time to really understand the language of the filmmakers because your job is basically translate into music the filmmaker's vision. Mm -hmm. It's it, That's what makes, I think, film scoring so different to most other areas of music um, because in most areas of music... The music is the final goal. Like the the goal of the musician is to make the best music. Right. But in film scoring, it's not that. Sometimes your cue should be much more simple. And you could have written an amazing violin part, but muting it is the right thing to do <laughs> for the film. Right. Because it's getting in the way of the dialogue or getting in the way of the acting. Uh, so in film scoring, the film is the is the end goal. 
and the music is just a service towards right, the an film. Enhancer, and that makes yeah. a big difference because when you're working on a record or you're putting together a recital, it's all about the music. And you just have to make sure the music is the best that it can be. But in film scoring, a lot of times you end up with cues that are not nearly as good or as rich musically as you could have made them, but it's the right thing to do because it's it's what will help right. the different purpose. It has a different the, purpose. It, exactly. The purpose is more about the film. Yeah. So so in, in this creative process, like how do you how do you function in this moment when you first see the you know the visuals and, and of course I'm sure you have someone there with you. Yeah, exactly. Well the usually the first meeting in a film when you actually watch the, the film and you decide where the music should be, it's called a spotting session. And a spotting session is, a, is step one of film scoring. Every single movie or TV show will have them. Um, and it's when you meet up, you watch the movie with the filmmakers. I say filmmakers because it dif it's different every time. Like sometimes it's a, a director and one producer. Sometimes it could be a director and three producers. Mm. Very rarely, but sometimes there's no director involved by then. Sometimes, you know, there's issues in the middle and then a producer takes over. So you end up scoring with only four producers and no director. It, it doesn't happen often, but it, it has happened. And I've been in that position. Or sometimes there's an editor that has a lot of say. It's an editor, for example, that has worked with a director on many films before. And then for the spotting session, you will be with the director, the editor, and a producer. Mm. So basically, yeah, you meet up with the filmmakers, you watch the whole movie. It usually takes a lot longer than the film. If the film is an hour and a half, your spotting session might be four hours. Because a lot of stopping, right, a rewinding, lot of pausing and replaying, and defining like whether the cue should come in here or before. Kind of Do you things. usually have like your instrument there sort of to start, you know, writing down some ideas or I, I personally try to avoid that. Um, because of what I've learned from from seeing other composers mm -hmm. like Klaus or Hans and people, how they deal with it because it's really dangerous to play the wrong thing. It's it, ah, especially okay. if it's so early in the process, you don't really know what they're looking for. I try to do it in a place where there's no instruments <laughs> or try to make sure that they, they understand that we're not going to play anything because it can be really, really dangerous to just start playing the wrong thing before you really know what they're looking for. Right. And they can be very turned off and be like, oh, my God, no, you're not the right guy because you started playing the piano and I hate the piano. Uh, and it can happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can happen. And yeah. until you can talk to them a little bit more, you can see what their vision wow. is. Eventually, one of them might, might say, I There's a lot I of psychology involved in this, too. There's like, a lot of strategy in psychology. <laughs> strategy, yeah. I've had meetings where in the middle of a meeting, one of the producers would, would just say, like, I hate woodwinds. And okay. that's it. <laughs> you just take note of that. And they're like, okay. Yeah, so no woodwinds here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but if before they say that, you suddenly watch something and you're like, "Oh, I think this flute here could work." That could literally turn them off and just look at you as yeah, like you're not the right person for this gig, and it like you know it can affect the meeting. So wow. unless it's a director that you've worked with before, where there's a relationship right. already, that's completely different. Which I've been in that position too. Well, that that yeah. that takes time and experience, I guess. Is like, and you build a relationship, right? You got to yeah. build those relationships. And, and when it's that, then it's so easy. Because I mean, not easy, but it's easy to to feel free to say what you want, because the director already trusts you, and he right. will say it to your face, be like, "Oh no, dude, that's terrible. Like, no, let's not go there." Yeah. But you're not gonna lose the gig. Right. But right. when it's someone that you've never met before, and it's a high stakes, sure. 
you always try to kind of like there's a little dating process right <laughs> sure. and there's like famous duos want. like I'm thinking of David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti right? oh yeah they make Absolutely. all their films like collaboratively Spielberg which is, and Williams sure yeah. or yeah all kinds of it must be cool to have uh, Zemeckis and Silvestri sure they do everything together too yeah it must be great to have that kind of a relationship to create together yeah it happens a lot I would say the majority probably 7 out of 10 directors end up finding their person they have the guy and yeah that's who they that's who they work with yeah it's cool So how is scoring music for a motion picture different than writing music for a TV show or a news program? Yeah, uh, that's a very good or question. A commercial. Or a commercial. Yeah. They're all different. All the ones that you, that you mentioned. So let's start with commercial, for example, to try to get, get it away. Commercial tends to be a very common first step for composers because uh-huh. there's many of them. They usually have a budget because it comes from corporate money, not from creative money. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's a first uh, stepping stone for a lot of composers that end up doing films and TV. Most of us have worked on commercials. Mm-hmm. Commercials, I think, are much closer to songs in a way. Uh, right. not, not because they need words. That's more of a jingle. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of commercials don't... Most commercials nowadays are not jingles. Jingles are kind of gone. But um, when I say it's more like a song, is you're trying to sell something. So the music is a little bit more out there. It's it's in your face. It's not so underscorey. Like in commercials, you will rarely hear people be like, "Oh no, I just want it to be in the background." It's mostly like, "Sell this," right? You know, like do something catchy, something that will grab your ear. So it's it's a lot of grab you. People are going to turn it off. Exactly. Right. You got like five seconds before they hit the mute button. Exactly. So it needs to be catchy. It needs to be upbeat. It needs to be fun. Um, so uh, in that way, I think um, it, it's it's a lot more similar to songs. Mm-hmm. But you do get experience with syncing. You know, like like syncing things to picture, mm-hmm. finding cuts that that work with the visuals, finding pacing that mm-hmm. works with visuals. So that I think is a good school for film scoring. The music writing itself is quite different to to film. Like very rarely would a film ever want the kind of out there boom right. that a commercial usually wants. On the commercial yeah. is music is usually much much shorter because the commercials themselves 30 seconds, are 20 seconds, like yeah. less than 30 seconds most of them. Like yeah. anything more than 30 seconds is probably too much, right? Yeah. And and they're very hooky, usually. Right. So you got to get to the, basically get to the punchline right away, musically speaking. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. And a lot of times it's that, like, you know, you have the whistles and the snaps and <laughs> things like that, like to just keep people upbeat and, and happy. Um, then a middle ground between between commercials and films, uh, I would say it's, it's trailers because trailers are commercials for films. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. And it's kind of in the middle in that sense because there's usually a little bit of scoring. You know, uh-huh. trailers are usually longer, too. They're a minute to two minutes long, right. or sometimes two and a half minutes. And there's usually areas where you have to be a little bit more subdued. And then there's a ramp up. And at the end, with the title cards, usually there's a bam that is much more like a commercial. Right. Uh, so that's oh, kind of in the middle. So I always, you know, I, I would have thought, I guess, that they would just use the same music from the movie as they put in the trailer. But 
maybe the music hasn't even been written yet for the movie. It's yes, yeah. exactly. It's wow, almost never, unless hmm. it's a franchise that they okay. want to exploit. All oh, right, like, there, there's like the underlying themes of soundtracks, right? Like right Star that Wars you, movies and stuff like that. But you, sure. but exactly. you also do have some flexibility with that, right? That you can insert the theme, but you can use, you know, a little bit different. What is almost <laughs> never, and that might be something that people don't know, it's it's usually, I, w- I would say 99.9% of the time, it's not the same composer. Wow. The trailer is a different world. Like, there will be a composer for the trailer who's not even related to the composer of the film. Interesting. Very, wow. very rarely is is the composer the one that makes the trailers. It only happens on the two spectrums, either super high-budget movies, like, for example, a Star Wars might have something that John Williams writes for the, for the trailer, mm-hmm. or a very low-budget movie that has no, no budget for, for trailers. Yeah, the that composer ends up is just also the director. The and yeah, it's exactly. also the, <laughs> <laughs> the musician. And he's playing every cue. And, and, and it's everything. also recording. <laughs> and it's Which also happens, writing and the script. also doing the sound effects and everything. <laughs> So that those two spectrums, but on a regular movie, like a middle of the road movie, th- it's a different department, and you're dealing with different departments too. You never meet the music department; you meet the advertisement department. So you work with the marketing department of a of a film studio, like for example, Universal Studios marketing department. They will deal with the trailers, and it's a whole different set of people. And then the Universal Studios music department will be dealing with the score, but you never meet them if you're doing the trailers. Um, when it's a franchise, a lot of times you will have to use the franchise sound. So if it's Harry Potter or something like that, then you have to do the theme. Mm-hmm. But it's still not the composer, the one doing it. It's, it's a different composer that just kind of adapts that theme into something else. Um, Very interesting. So I'm looking at your website here. Um, it is uh, nimblemusic.com. That's like my library company. Oh, okay. But yes. That's, and, um, and then your other company is 506? Correct. Yeah. What, That's what, the one that is my own. Where does 506 come from? 506 is actually the calling uh, code for Costa Rica, our home, Lancer yeah. oh, home. Okay. So when you call like 310, nice. you know, or 323, right. yeah, yeah. 506 yeah. is our country code. Ah, so, see. Very cool. Yeah. That's nice. It's just every time I would call home for, for anything, I would always start with plus 506. Right. So oh. then that was a little, a little cool. ode to home. That's good to know. Uh, but I'm seeing you've you've written music for so many different TV shows. I'm seeing this the show called True Nightmares, and there's a show called Wheeler Dealers. <laughs> and I see that you wrote music for Vice News, which is a great news program, by the way. I love. Yeah, that I love that too. Uh, yes, I have um, all of those that you're mentioning. Well, except True Nightmares, uh, have actually been library shows, which work a little bit differently. They're not scored. Mm-hmm. They usually um, commission you to do a certain amount of tracks Mm -hmm. and then the editors or music editors would cut them in so i don't really have a say on what ends up being in the show or where where things are used so you just supply them with the raw materials and then they use it however they want exactly so they'll commission you a hundred tracks for example which it's usually large numbers a hundred or 150 tracks and it's divided they want 20 action tracks 20 emotional tracks 20 things like that and then you you do that. So most of those shows have been that. True Nightmares was like half and half. Okay. We provided them with, I think, 50 or 60 tracks. And then there was a little bit of scoring. So mm-hmm. they would basically cut it in and some scenes that weren't working, there was a little budget that they had to have it, to have it bounce back to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are different, a very different process than scoring. Those are right. not scored. Those right. are just like m- library 
uh, library. You just shares. send them the audio file, and then that that's it. Exactly. You send the audio files, and you send stems, which is basically the multi tracks. So okay. you would send, for example, drums only, bass only, synths oh, wow. only, strings only. Oh wow! So okay. that the editors can cut around. And sometimes when you see the show, you're like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> they use a stem from a different cue on top of your drums from a different cue. Like they'll just pull they'll it mix all and match. All over the place. It's very interesting. That's that is interesting. So they're called library tracks because but you basically supply them with a library of sounds that they can use. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And That's cool. uh, and I'm noticing from the playlist on your website that most of them are around between one and two minutes long. Exactly. It's it's actually between one and a half to two minutes. Okay. So it depends on the network. But both HBO and Discovery. So Discovery it's a gigantic network. It's not just Discovery Channel. Mm -hmm. They own like 60 other networks. They own Animal Planet. They own TLC for reality shows, uh, Investigation Discovery. I could keep going. Own Network. A lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, so the Discovery communications thing usually wants tracks between 90 seconds to 120. It's the same as HBO, who mm -hmm. does Vice News. Mm -hmm. It's usually 90 seconds to 120. Uh, they give you a little bit of a leeway in there. If your queue is, gets everything done in 87 seconds, no one's going to tell you anything. But in general, you try to keep it in between a minute and a half to two minutes and um, give the stems. And <clears throat> is there like a, a, a particular pattern of, uh, you know, of, of the style of, the, of these tracks that they're looking for? Does, does, does there have to be like, a, you know, like a climax every time and then there's <laughs> got to be like a, like a, you know, more of a conclusive statement at the end or like a soft beginning? Like how, do, how does it, how's the build, how's the plot basically yeah, absolutely. Of, of, of each sound? It's usually very general, like it's, they have guidelines and it's like all formulas, the same. Yeah? It's formulas. It's usually A, B, A prime, okay. usually most, most of these networks. So you have an A section, a B section and then uh, a development on your A section mm -hmm. that they can use. And they oh. usually want to have a strong ending and a soft ending. So you have to give like either, for example, the, your first A can, can be slow ending and the last A will have a little, dun, 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 you know, yeah. like something <laughs> to just kind of like end it up. Wow. That, that sounds uh, like a miniature version of Sonata form. Basically you have two themes and a development <laughs> session. Well, the, and a code. The, the, it is. The ABA, it is. Yeah. It's two basically Sonata. Sonata. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two minutes. That's all awesome. good. Yeah. And, and uh, so are these also like, like, um, like very light in content in general, like they're not like, you know, you, you mentioned commercial, the music for commercials is, is more like, you know, heavy sounding and a little bit more, you know, upbeat and stuff. So for these, the, the, is there like a, a particular like sweet spot in, in terms of, of like density and layers? That's a great question. And it's very, very project based. So it really depends on, on the project. For example, Wheeler Dealers is a car show. Uh, it's basically like a, him by ride but not not so urban mm -hmm. so it's more like they they find an old car and they find a way to like redo it fully so uh 1960s porsche and they just uh, like revamp it fully and they they go through the engine and it's it's, it's more educational so they okay. tell you all these things and it's a one-hour show but so a lot of the music is either rock to have that kind of like yeah. you know testosterone type thing <laughs> right. yeah, or no, some like yeah. um we call it process music, process which is music. the the music that just kind of works for for a mechanic shop or any kind of like transitional. Process that it's a music. process okay. music is I more like a little beat. Yes, exactly. Just someone. Are, yep. I'm thinking yeah, of that exactly. show. Um, how it's made. Yes. 
It's exactly yeah. <laughs> it so many the shows. same style of music. Yeah. When it, you know, there's like the person explaining the the narrator, right? And then there's moments of like that silence of just watching the process, and it's got like that background music <laughs> yes. that's just so simple, but is right. is it very is. usually like very upbeat and very like. Sometimes I think of it as sort of like brainwave music, where it's like things are happening. Yes, exactly. Yeah, nothing that's going to grab your attention, but it's there. It's yeah, exactly. And honestly, it's it's mostly. Uh, again, another stepping stone for most composers. Okay. I don't know many people that love, n not that I don't, I mean, I'm grateful for the gigs. <laughs> Is any producer listening to? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's not necessarily, uh, most composers want to score and to do okay, that kind right. of thing. But there's a lot of work in, in that television, in that type of television, cable TV. Mm -hmm. And cable TV, it's always producing content. Right. And it's it's you know there's there's royalties to be collected sure. if it goes on cable, so it's a very working man composer's gig. So it's it mm. pays the bills, it gets everything done, it adds up at the end because a lot of times they have reruns. So it's 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 a nice area to work when you're starting to kind of build your career. So for people that might be wanting to get into this industry, like. Again, like you were saying before, it's kind of who you know and making connections and networking. Absolutely. I mean, do TV studios, I mean, can you just send them a demo tape or send them an email, a cold call, something like that? Normally no. not. No. You just need to somehow get in the door. Yes. In my case, uh, you know, friends that are editors mm -hmm. that just kind of started asking for cues when they needed cues. And then they would make an intro to the music department. I would end up going for brunch with, with a music supervisor. And then they would commission me 20 cues. You know, let's start small. Yeah. Uh, 20 cues is not, it's not a lot, but you would get them done. And if they like it, then eventually they would be like, okay, let's do a package of 50 for this show. Mm -hmm. Until, you know, we got to shows like Vice News, it ended up being like 500 tracks. It was, it was a big, I did, I ended up doing only like 10% of them. We ended up hiring a lot of people mm -hmm. uh, to get different sounds and also to be able to deliver on time. Right. What, what kind of time do they give you? Do they say, I need these in a week or I need these in... No, you, usually you have a little bit more time, usually. But the sooner you can get them the music, in this case, is usually the better because they are already editing. So the sooner right. you can send it, it's not like you wait until you have all 100 tracks. Right. Okay. You usually send every week. If you finish seven, you send those seven until you reach your quota. <laughs> with a pencil and paper or um, in a software program on your computer or do you just write it in your head first or how does that no I, I definitely in, in the computer okay 99% of the time I do sit on the piano or with a guitar a lot of times to, mm -hmm. to get the ideas um, but no I mean honestly I haven't used pencil and paper in right. years yeah um, and sometimes I would use it if I'm uh, transcribing something like if i listen to mm -hmm. to a piece that i really love i would you know i would write it down to try to like analyze it and things like that but i also haven't done that in probably two years I, there's right. just no time so, um, so how much of your music is actually written down you know on the computer and how much of it is just played and recorded oh i would say probably 80 percent is just played and recorded i only write it down 
when it needs to be performed by somebody else. I see. Okay. That's yeah. that's where it comes down to just kind of out of effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would only write down the parts that need to be recorded. So if I'm right. doing a score and everything else I can do m- by myself except an oboe part, you know, let's say it's like a, uh, or let's say I'm going to do oboe and English horn and flute, but everything else is just me with samples or guitars and piano and things like that. Then I would just write those three parts. It's not like I would generate a score for the whole thing. Right. Because you're not um, going to publish like the score probably. No. Yeah. I think, I mean, once you get to a different level that you're doing ma- major mainstream movies right. that people want to perform at schools and things like that. Then yes, you yeah. would find a way to like write it all down and make it into a piece. But ninety right. percent of your work will end up just being for that project. It's actually very difficult to find scores for film for film scores. Official score. Official scores. Official scores. Extremely yeah. difficult. Yeah, it would have to be again like iconic composers that might release it, like John Williams or James Newton Howard, things like that. But even some of them, they don't have like they don't release like official like sheet music. No. No, yeah. no. Uh, there's, there's always some, some uh, like arranger or, you know, someone else that transcribes it that has to get you know permission. Exactly. Right, and then they can take it to like also like a publisher, and then they can print out the the scores and, and, and yeah, and it's stuff. true. For example, um, back to Klaus, who I worked with for for a few years, he did Pirates of the Caribbean, which is very often performed in right. like high schools and things like that. Yeah, but it's not his version. Oh, I remember right. I went to Texas. Um, a few years ago, because uh, a friend of mine that I went to college with is an educator, and she has a youth orchestra. And she invited me to go see, they give like a little lecture, and they performed it. And I was looking at the score, and it's just exactly what you say. It was adapted mm-hmm. by someone right. and published with with permission of Disney, mm-hmm. but it's not Klaus's music. And I, I remember looking at the score and being like, it's very close, but it's not exactly, you know, like this yeah, is definitely well, Sometimes they change the key mm-hmm. or they simplify it, you know, oh, yeah, like exactly. if it's a Mostly high school orchestra, it's not going to be the same as if, if it's, you know, like, you know, like honors orchestra in some college or, some, or something like yeah, that. Or, exactly. or like sometimes when they, you know, that just made me think of like method books for instruments, you know, it's like the beginner's guide to, you know, piano in this case. Right. And then you have right. this like beginner's book with the Star Wars theme, but it's only like, you know, like... <laughs> right two notes per measure and right, <laughs> exactly. know, like, yeah. stuff like that, that they still need permission and they probably have to do it in an easier key and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, I guess people also make a living out of this and they don't even have to relate directly to the, no, exactly. To, That's the, a whole to the original world. composer. So back to your question, I've, I have yet to release any of my music. Okay. I've never done it so far. I've written down tons of parts mm-hmm. for, for all my projects but I've never had a, a published score or a full score for something. It's usually, even the ones that I've recorded with orchestra might have a score with, you know, strings, brass, and things like that. But there's always so much electronics that even if you play it, it's not going to sound like the score because right. all my percussion is in the computer mm-hmm. and all my synth basses and things like that mm-hmm. or doubles are, are in the computer too. So it's, it would, if you were just to play the part it would sound like a very empty version of my cue. <laughs> I see. So what are you working on right now? Uh, well, right now my main gig is an animation show that I'm doing for DreamWorks, uh, which is going to be on Netflix. 
So um, the backstory to how, how these shows are kind of happening now is that a couple of years ago, Disney announced that they're going to start their own platform. It's going to be called Disney Plus. Okay, wow. It's like the new Netflix. And they announced it, and I think it's coming soon. It's probably next year or 2020. Wow. Um, it's just going to be an online streaming? An online for streaming for Disney. Wow. Uh, but that's going to be big because Disney, you know, it owns Pixar, it owns Marvel, mm. it owns, uh, now it owns Fox. Oh, really? They bought it this year. So I think wow. it hasn't f been finalized, but by the time Disney Plus launches, it probably will have all of Fox's content too. Wow. Is that, so does that mean that they're going to remove their content from Netflix and yes, other? Oh, absolutely. They're taking it out of everyone. That's going to be interesting. So, and that's obviously a big blow for Netflix in particular, because Netflix right now is the giant. Yeah. It has no competition. There's many others, yeah. but like Hulu and things like that, but everybody has kind of found their own niche. No one is competing to Netflix necessarily, like directly. Huh. Amazon Prime has their own stuff. And, and HBO, yeah, but yeah, HBO, HBO but has their own stuff too. Right. But uh, Netflix is kind of like the only one that has an umbrella of all kinds of stuff. Mm. So... Okay, well, and, and, and I guess Disney is a huge contributor to their content, too. Gigantic. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, when this kind of happened, um, Netflix went to DreamWorks, and they signed a giant deal. I don't remember what it is, but it's millions and millions uh, of development, because DreamWorks is the second biggest animation studio after Disney. Mm -hmm. So, they've been creating a lot of original content for Netflix that will stay at Netflix. And some of it was existing IP from things that we all know, like Shrek, Madagascar, How mm -hmm. to Train Your Dragon, like mainstream things mm -hmm. that have been adapted into television. And some of it was original. Um, most famous uh, one, there's one called Troll Hunters that Guillermo del Toro did. Yes, my children love that show. Oh, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's a DreamWorks Netflix yeah. uh, original. There's one coming out this year, I think in December, that is called Three Below. Okay. Also from from the same kind of agreement. And then there's my show, which is coming out soon, which uh, hasn't been announced yet, so I can't talk about it fully, but oh, okay. I'm, I'm allowed to say I'm working on it. So you, can you <laughs> tell us the name of it? Not yet. Okay. But it's it'll it'll be out eventually. Um, but it's the next this. in... <laughs> It's a DreamWorks show for Netflix. Classified well, information here. And <laughs> is there a release date for it? I think they're they're aiming for about a year from now. So okay. a year after three below. Is so this is this the biggest project you've ever worked on? Or, or one on of my the own? Biggest? Yes. Yeah. On my own is is the biggest one. I've done a few um, films and some you know like cable TV shows and things like mm -hmm. that. But this is definitely a step up for me because this is actual score. Every single moment will be written to picture. Oh, uh, yeah, and it's wow. it's also a lot of songs, probably okay. twenty something songs in the end, wow. all original songs because it's uh, like an animated musical. Right. So and are you writing the words to the songs and everything? Yeah. Well, I mean, usually I get uh, a script that has already the song kind of sketched in it, uh -huh. and a lot of times it's very musical because some of the writers in the writing room are musicians, and I can tell because of the way that they use rhyming and mm. kind of musicality right so it's it's easy to adapt them into songs because it's not like they just write it as text they usually have some sort of musicality to it right. but yes like you i can have see to the separation of verses and choruses and things like that like the structure of the lyrics um depends sometimes yes sometimes less so mm -hmm. but um basically they send me the scripts they'll there'll be a song moment and then I have to kind of ex extract that song moment and adapt it and make it into into a song. So sometimes I have to like 
switch words or skip some parts, but mm. make sure that the main story points come come through because all the songs serve a purpose. They're part of the story. Right. So, yeah. Wow. Sounds like a fun project. I'm loving it, honestly. And it's yeah. very different to anything I've ever done. It's I've done animation shorts, but I had never done a long-form animation project. So how much it's very music, different. like, how much, like, time of music are you writing, like, all told for this? Oh, it's going to be probably between 600 and 700 minutes. Wow. It's a lot. Oh, wow. That is a shit ton of music. <laughs> it is a lot of music, yeah. Is it the kind of thing where there's going to be music continually throughout the entire show, or are there parts without music? There are some parts without music, but it's very heavy. It's very music heavy. I mean, there's a ton of music. Mm -hmm. Usually in animation, it's like that. Right. Any animation show, you'll see that there's a few seconds without music, followed by a lot of music. Right. So, And are you going to be recording some orchestral stuff for this? Yeah, most likely for this, yeah. Uh, but that will probably happen next year. Mm -hmm. Most of the recording will happen next year, um, except some of the songs where we have already recorded or we are recording now because the songs are performed by the, by the voice actors. And so usually when we get them in to do the voiceover, then we book a session to do the song at the same time so that you know, we can just get it all recorded and then we'll deal with the music later. Nice. So the actors who do the speaking parts are the same same ones who do the singing for the song? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, most of them have been cast um, and they're actors that can sing well. Okay. Is that usually the case? On a show like this, I think it is. On a show that okay. it, that they know from beforehand that the characters are going to sing, characters they usually sing. cast people, they, they cast actors that have a musical background. Usually okay. like, mm -hmm. you know, more of type of like, maybe theater or Broadway type of actors right, sure. that can do both. Or just feature film actors that can that can sing pretty well. But there's many. I mean, right, yeah. we see it all the time. Yeah, it's part of the package, right? Yeah, Acting, exactly. dance, the whole like, thing. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. And so far, it, they've been great. I mean, there's some extremely talented actors that on this show that I'm blown away with how they can sing because initially you show up and you have no idea. Right. Like, okay, can this person actually sing? But... Mm -hmm. I've been blow away, blown away over and over because every time I go, I'm like, wow, these are pros. These guys can do it. Are there any actors that we would have heard of? There's a few, but I, I, can, I don't think I can, I can say that, unfortunately, right now. Okay. But eventually, yes. <laughs> Fair enough. It's all Fair enough. secret secrets. It's <laughs> exciting. Daniel Rojas, thank you very much for inviting us to your studio here in Culver City and spending all this time talking to us. It's been really great. Of course. No, it was a lot of fun. Great questions. Yeah. Well, there's so much to Daniel that I think we would need like days to really <laughs> <laughs> get all the fascinating stories and, and, and experiences of his career. But it's you know, definitely someone that I admire a lot and, and it's, uh, it's awesome to have as a friend and just a fellow Costa Rican uh, being so successful and, and loving what he does. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank you. It's pretty yeah. cool. Pura vida. <laughs> Pura vida. Pura vida. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Oliver Altine and Lonzo Luconi. Very special thanks to our guest today, Daniel Rojas. If you want to get in touch with Daniel, you can find his website at danielrojas.com 
or you can check out 506music.com. This show is produced by Oliver Altine. That's me. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're all over the place. And check out our website, AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.